All right. Good to see everybody this morning. Um, I'm going to dive right in. Um, and so, yeah, just for some new folks, you guys, will, you guys will catch on. But basically what we do is we kind of do 20-minute, 20 20-minute, 20 20-minute 20 talk, meditation, discussion. Uh, and we're going to start changing some things up in the near future. We're going to do a Q&A session once a month and maybe some other stuff I'm thinking about too. So, But basically, and all the stuff is recorded. So if you go in the Rizuku, all the, not all of them, but most of them, I have a bunch I need to kind of upload. Uh, most of these, the talks and the meditation portion of these meetings are inside the Rizuku. There's probably 70 of them them or so by now so um lots going on uh this morning i want to continue on the trail of breadcrumbs i stumbled into last week you might recall i was i came up here with five minutes to spare and had no idea what i was going to talk about and just randomly randomly turned to this uh, page of this book i've been reading by rupert gethin which is a, a phd thesis on the factors of awakening on these 32 dimensions um and his conclusion chapter talking about how sila uh, is really kind of the, the key aspect of practice. And without sila, uh, you can't have meditation and wisdom. You know, so really it, it's understood as, as the ground bed of all of this stuff. But I want to talk today about what's, what, what he refers to as the turning point. And so I think that this, this is a really important idea, I think, that I stumbled on. And that, that there's turning points in our path and there's turning points in our life. And that uh, a lot of times it doesn't necessarily happen when we're having a meditation experience, which is, I think, usually what we do. We think we're going to sit, right? We're going to sit in meditation. We're going to go on retreat. And while we're meditating, some, some, something's going to happen, some shift in consciousness, some new perspective. And then, you know, on the other side of that, you know, we're going to not suffer anymore. We're going to understand things differently. And that may or may not be the case. Um, but usually I find that most of the big turning points in my, I have in my life are not something that happens on the cushion. You know, some big ones like, you know, somebody we love dies. You know, a very important relationship ends. A very important relationship begins. We move. We get a new job. You know, we we have a kind of uh, epiphany about something. We we wake up to some changes that we need to make. Um, and this shit goes on all the time. And, and Gethin does a really good job about talking about this as a turning point in the path, and I'll just read what he says here. I think I read this last week, but I think it's important. He says, the early discourse may not always present the turning point in spiritual development as a formal meditation exercise, or even an issuing from immediately prior spiritual practice. So this stuff doesn't always come while we're sitting. But what clearly interests the texts, what they continually return to, is the precise nature of the mind at the turning point, right? Think about that for a second. So we have some big epic change in our life. Uh, and what is the nature of the mind? How do we record or how do we capture that? Right. Do we, we experience that as just another trauma, just another loss, just another bad experience for me, just another version of me not getting what I want, just another version of me getting what I don't want? Do we just kind of catalog that as a kind of another wounding or another kind of dukkha experience? Most likely that's probably what we do. So what they're very interested in is the nature of mind at the turning point. What kind of mind is it? that produces such a fundamental and far-reaching change of heart. What is so special about that? What is different about that? How is it related to other types of mind states? And what are the factors that contribute to it? 
A concern with such question is quite apparent from the descriptions contained in the gradual awakening process found in the early discourse. I never heard it presented like that. Now, just to go back again to Satipatthana, um, which we know gets a lot of airtime. And so I think this is also a very important aspect of what we would call the fourth foundation of mindfulness. Um, you know, which, which if you listen back, I've talked talked about it exhaustively, but, but what, what, what the hell is going on in the fourth foundation of mindfulness? And I think very simply and very clearly what's going on in the fourth foundation of mindfulness is two particular things that Analyo points to. The fourth foundation of mindfulness, also known as the fourth Satipatthana. And he says the task, and I love that he uses that word task, of the fourth Satipatthana is to monitor the mind on the path to liberation. So when we look back at our life, we look at our experiences, how do we monitor progress on the path? Can we see, can we categorize, can we uh, categorize, can we even talk about some of the turning points we've had? I'm sure we all can. You know, and those are things that either lead us towards the path of liberation or we kind of collapse underneath those. So there's a clear indication here that part of mindfulness is to learn how to track your progress on the path. And then he says here, the two essential components, the two core aspects of this development are learning how to overcome the hindrances, the five hindrances, and how to develop the awakening factors and or the Brahma Viharas. So what does all that mean? Uh, I think what it means is actually some very simple, simple things. And so um, part of, I think, where we have to um, lean into, uh, and people who have done therapy or recovery or have done some kind of psychological work that we do in a Western context, this is very, very helpful because uh, what we, a lot of what you're dealing with is your own subjective content, Right. And so like in, in, uh, like in Bowlby's attachment theory and kind of, you know, one of the key components to kind of emotional and relational health is that you have a coherent narrative. And a coherent narrative is that if I, and people in AA get this, when you go in front of the mic at the AA meeting and you spend an hour telling your story, uh, that actually builds that coherent narrative. And what happened? What was it like? What is it like now? You know, basically being able to retell the autobiographical story of your life. And that if you told that story, let's say 10 times, each version of the story would be a little bit different, but there would be some key indicators. And those would probably be turning points, right? This happened, and when this happened, it led me this way, and then this happened, and it led me that way. And we really have to um, have a coherent narrative. So we, we, we get a sense of sort of what happened to us. We know crucial or key moments or key experiences that led us in a different direction. Um, and we also are able to retell that in a way, um, almost to the point when you tell your story. As a Dharma teacher, this happens to me sometimes. Sometimes I go to a new community and I feel like I got to tell them a little bit about myself and I get really tired of it uh, because I have a coherent narrative and it's like part of it. And, and part of the narrative is like, you know, I look at the coherent narrative and I look at the four turning points. And I'm like, oh, I don't even want, I'm so fucking tired of talking about this stuff. You know what I mean? I don't want to talk about, you know, my teen years. I don't want to talk about, the death of my sister. I don't want to, you know, there's a lot of stuff I don't, there's a lot of shit in my narrative. I don't really want to be in my narrative, you know? 
And so the, and then so what that captures is so really what the Buddha's talking about here, and I think Gethin is pointing out, is that there's two things. There's A, there's that we have these turning points. We have these, we might call them a disruption. We might call them a kind of installation of trauma, big events, good, bad, or otherwise. They're not all bad. Sometimes they're great. Um, but it's the quality of the mind that we are in when that kind of moment happens. And what happens is we, if, if that's a destructive kind of narrative or a destructive kind of mental state, a lot of the work that we do, like, you know, EMDR does this, you know, is we have to, it's not what happens to us that matters. It's how we make sense of what has happened to us. Right. So the, the experiences that we've been through are a little bit irrelevant. It's how we make sense of those events. Like, for example, you might have, and this is well-documented in clinical research, you know, you have two children, brother and sister, grew up in an abusive alcoholic home, right? They were both treated terribly. They were both treated the same. They were both neglected. They were both abused in very, very similar ways. One of the kids turns out actually totally fine, has a well-adjusted life, a coherent narrative, is able to thrive and do well in the world. The other one, not even at all. Why is that? Of course, nobody knows. But a lot of that is, is that is that one buddy, somebody was able to make meaning and purpose and be able to transform that into a way to move forward, and the other person was not able to do that. So if I look at the history of my turning points, some of them uh, pushed me, excelled me forward into a kind of more spiritual development, propelled me forward into better behavior. They were actually helpful for whatever reason. And some of them uh, I stay stuck in uh, and I feel like I don't want to talk about them or I feel terrible about them or I feel like they shouldn't have happened and actually they shouldn't have happened to anybody. And then uh, what happens is the meaning I make out of that, and a lot of times, and for much of my life, probably until very recently, unfortunately, I kind of had a destructive narrative, you know, uh, around uh, things that have happened. And, And one thing that I can say that was very interesting that I did Oh God, when I lived in Nashville with this doctor, Dr. Lee Norton, my trauma therapist, who was a brilliant, we did these things where she would take these turning points, as we call them, and, and uh, we would basically categorize and say, I think I had five. And what she would do is she would do this thing called an anamnesis. And what you would do is I would go into a meditative, take about two hours. I'd go into a meditative state and she'd ask me a series of questions. What, what memory do you have? And she would ask me questions and she would write down my answers to the questions. And then after she did that for about two hours, she would give me uh, a bunch of paper and a box of crayons. And she would say, I want you to draw these out. And so she would read through the first segment and I'd draw it and we put that aside. And sometimes one episode, one turning point would be, let's say, 15 to 20 drawings. And I'd draw them out as she laid it out. And then when she was done, she would take these 20 drawings and tape them up on the wall and she would retell the story of what happened to me through the pictures. Very weird fucking thing to do. But you walk away just like you can't even remember how you felt about it two hours before because your mind is actually completely different now. And what turned out, and this was really helpful to me, is when I, when I looked at all the bad things that happened to me, um, they were always followed almost immediately by one of the most important or life-changing things that happened to me, like, you know, getting sober or going on a Dharma retreat or getting back into practice, is that those things that were so bad and traumatizing uh, actually were the things that pushed me in a direction uh, that was really actually quite good. 
So this whole idea of like, I've had good things happen to me and bad things happen to me, that whole measuring stick is just totally useless because your mind doesn't actually compute in that way. And any of you, many of you are in recovery, right? Like, you know that, right? Like, if it wasn't for all the horrible shit that happened to you because of drugs and alcohol, you never would have. So are the drugs and alcohol years bad? No, they're fucking great. So, you know, again, we have to be careful that when we look at our narrative, we, we take everything that has happened to us and we try to use it in a constructive way to help us move in the direction that we want to go, to help us move in, in a way that we would like to to go and uh, dan siegel talks about this a lot again it's not what happens to us it's how we make sense of what happens to us and if we can make a sense of you know anybody who's been watching the Brene brown atlas of the heart on hbo max i don't know if you've seen any of that but it's fucking phenomenal is how do you take all that and then move into connection uh and meaning and purpose. And those are the things that we want to be able to do. We want to have good connections and good relationships in our life uh, with whether they're romantic or friendly or teacher or whatever they are. We want to have those kind of relationships where we feel we're getting reciprocated. Um, we also want to have a sense of meaning where we feel like we what we're doing, the work that we do is somewhat meaningful. When we wake out of bed and we look at our schedule for the day, we don't go, oh, fuck. You know, we have a little bit of uh, positivity or hope about what lies ahead. Uh, and that we, we feel like we have a purpose, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm here um, for a purpose. And Camus said this best for those of you who like the existentialists out there. He's like, his whole thing is like the universe and the world or whatever you want to call it is actually totally incapable of providing you with any sense of meaning and purpose. The universe is ultimately a meaningless experience. And your job, your task, if you so see fit, is to try to make meaning and purpose out of a meaningless universe. And that is the work of the philosopher from his point of view. Right? And, and, and many of you are already doing this and, and have done this, but this is where I think the thing that I, I've seen many people do, and many of you and I have had conversations about this, is when people just sign up for the Buddhism thing. And they're just like, oh, I'm just going to be a Buddhist now and do what they do, because it's kind of just lazy. You know, I think religion, for, for all its good, bad, and otherwise, is mostly kind of a, a lazy thing. Like, I don't want to have to think about this shit at all, so I'm just going to ascribe to some line of thinking, some dogmatic experience that's already answered all the big questions for me, so I don't have to deal with it myself, right? And many of us, probably all of you, have not found that to be a very attractive way to go about things, and then you're just kind of left holding the bag, right? And I, I think when I use the word Dharma work, which is a, just another way to say Dharma practice, but I think it mostly feels like work more than it feels like practice. I enjoy practicing playing my guitar. I don't really enjoy this stuff most, much of the time because it's work. Well, good morning. Um, so today I'm going to actually just talk about one sentence. As you know, I've been obsessed with this Geffen book. We've been kind of going through it. There's a lot of great stuff in here. And I might have read this before, but I've been thinking about this a lot this week. Um, and so I want to bring this up. And so just to kind of, before I dig into it, is, is we've been talking a little bit about this idea of there being a turning point in practice, or really a turning point in our lives. And I think when we, we think about our Dharma process or Dharma journey, path, I think, is a word we can politely put aside. There's no Dharma path, obviously. Uh, you know, a path is too destination-oriented. I have a path to my chicken coop, and, you know, usually when you take a path, you start in one place, and you always end up at another place, and it's just a straight shot, no big deal. But this path is not like that at all. 
Um, so it's more of a, of a journey or a process. And actually, the thing about it, too, that makes it so difficult, I think, is that everybody's is different. And as the Buddha says many times in the early discourses, that he says, may no two of you follow the same path. So we could say that there's many different Dharma paths, as there are people who are practicing millions and millions of millions of different ways to go about this. Um, and so when we go through our life early on up till now, even recently, probably many of you have been on, we have these turning points. Some event happens in our life and it makes us question things. Uh, and maybe we make different choices. We make different trajectories. We get a new career. We get a new relationship. We end a relationship. We, we're dealing with these big turning points all the time in our life. And for those of us who live in a secular life, contemporary life, non-monastic, we have a lot of turning points. Um, and so I think insight, when we use the word insight, insight is not necessarily an inside job. A lot of the things that give rise to a kind of an insight or a personal change or transformation is something that happens in the external world, isn't it? And then we try to re reacclimate ourselves to that. So he says here, uh, this is Rupert Gethin from his PhD thesis on the 37 factors of awakening. And he calls them the Nikayas. The Nikayas are just the discourses in the Pali Canon. The Nikayas may not always present the turning point in spiritual development as a formal meditation experience. So most of the things that happen in our life uh, that are big and epic and important, they don't happen on the cushion, right? So we, and, and I said this a million times, but I think what happens for a lot of us is we, we get into a daily practice and we go on retreats and we think we're gonna have some experience in the meditation that's gonna fucking change everything. Some, some event, some insight, something's going to happen when we're sitting that's going to, you know, mean something. And I think actually that's not really how it goes is what Gethin's saying is that usually what we do is we, we, we use our meditation process to process or to make sense of the things that have happened. And then he goes on to say a whole bunch of interesting things. But what clearly seems to interest the texts what they continually are returning to is the precise nature of the mind at the turning point. So what kind of a mind, what kind of experience are we, are we in when we have these big changes, when we have these big gains and these big losses and these big perspectives, these big, you know, whether it's you know, recovery, a lot of people in recovery know this thing, you know, we make these big changes. What kind of a mind state do we find ourselves in? So what is the precise nature of mind at these turning points? What kind of mind is it that produces such a fundamental and far-reaching change of heart? So when we have a big change of heart, when we have a big kind of inspiration to do something different, to make these big changes, what kind of a mind, what kind of qualities need to be present in the mind to even be able to do that? What is so special about it? And is it even special? What is different about it? And how is it related to other types of mind? What are the factors that contribute to it? A concern with such questions is quite apparent from the description containing in the early discourses. Much of this is later explored in the teachings of Abhidharma. Right. So, um, you know, 
so when we think about there's a kind of two things going on, right? There's an external experience that happens. There's a gain, there's a loss, there's an upset, there's just a change of heart. And then there's what kind of a mind state uh, is, is helpful in that capacity. You know, so there probably needs to be some degree of awareness. You know, we have to be aware that these things are going on. We probably want to have some confidence rather than some faith. I mean, we want to have some confidence or faith rather than fear. You know, because we know that it takes a lot of, um, you know, fear and doubt and aversion. What what he's implicitly pointing to is that there are these destructive mind states that don't allow us to make these big changes. Or maybe we have a change of heart, but we can't back it up by behavior. Um, and then we get confused. So there's kind of these two things happening. There's what's going on out here in my life, and then there's how I'm interpreting it, and then there's how I process that slowly over a period of time, which probably what that produces for most of us is confusion. What am I supposed to do with this, about this, for this? What does this mean? What does this mean about me? What does this mean about my process? And so... Um, in the light of this conversation, formal meditation practice is a very small part of the game. So on one hand, when we practice meditation, do, do our daily practice, go on retreats, hopefully what we're doing is we're trying to cultivate a kind of mind that will benefit from a turning point experience, that will benefit from the loss, from the change, from the gain, from whatever it is. Uh, it will benefit from those experiences. In so many ways, we're kind of trying, we're trying to train ourselves to build up to a quality of mind that can adapt, that can adapt to these kinds of experiences. And is it necessarily special? I don't know. In which ways is it different from other states of mind? So these, you know, it's like this one sentence, you know, is like, I've been thinking about it for the last couple of weeks. It's like, oh God, I never really thought about thinking about it that way because I think, and a lot of us think, I believe a lot of us think is that the epic changes in our life, the kind of important things that we do, whether it's recovery-based or therapeutic-based or behavioral-based or relational-based, I think we get caught into the trap of thinking that that's going to be some kind of private experience that we have internally only and that what's going on out here is just kind of like the randomness of life but there's a there's a relationship here that's going on and so i've been talking to john peacock a lot lately i talked to him this week actually about um one of the things that he's been kind of um emphasizing around ethics and around making these choices and that um one of the things about mindfulness that's so important is that there's this, there's this term, uh, basically just it's, it's translated as contact. So every moment we make contact with our with our world, and that that's we we so the word it would be paso, which means to touch. So the mind is always touching experience, but there's another side of it I think that's really important. Is as much as we're touching experience, we're being touched. So there's two sides of contact. We make contact with the world and we, we touch the world with our mind and the mind touches us. So in a clinical sense, we would call that affect. So something happens and what is the affect? You know, and so we have Vedana, which is part of the affect, the pleasant, unpleasant nature of experience. But then there's the perception and the meaning that we describe by that. And a lot of us have been touched by the world. A lot of us times we get touched by the world in ways that are very painful. 
right? I'm, I, and then we want to shut that down. That's really the nature of suppression is I actually am no longer interested in being touched by my experience. The problem is you can't do that. You can't not be touched, right? And so, you know, on paper it might look good. And then we get in these weird emotional suppressions and we have to develop all these kind of not so great kind of afflictive, destructive aspects of our mind to try to avoid being affected by experience, knowing damn well that you can't actually do it. So you can't shut it down. And so when we kind of start thinking about this, we um, think so there, there's two sides to that. So there's, there's, the being, there's the being touched by the world in a way that's painful or even wounding or, you know, very traumatic even in ways. I mean, to some degree from Buddhist psychology, traumatic events are just ways in which we've been touched by the world been touched by experience that we've been unable to make sense of, we've been unable to process. And we carry that around with us for however long we carry that around with us. But also there's the other side of it, we're also touched by, we're moved by joy or, or awe and wonder uh, and just kind of this thing that John Kabat-Zinn talks about, which I think that we forget about is like, just to be completely, utterly fascinated by the fact that you're actually even here at all. You know, as it's called, the sacred mystery of awareness. What the fuck is this thing? This mind, this experience, consciousness, awareness. It's like, I don't like that word so much, but there is, there's no way to deny that there's an aspect of all of this that's just completely, we just don't fucking know. The great mystery of it all. But what happened is, how we are touched by the world, by life, by these experiences, we, we, we dictate really three things I think that are problematic. We dictate a self view. So if I look at all the painful experiences in my life and I say, well, I don't want to deal with the world. I don't want to be, being, being alive is just too hard and I just don't want to deal. So I'll drink, I'll do this, I'll do that. And we kind of try to, we try to avoid that, which is obviously impossible. But that becomes a strong view of like, this is just, this whole experience of being alive is just too hard and I don't really want to be doing it. So I'll protect myself, I'll shelter myself, I'll isolate. Right, that's one side of it. Or or it's not self-view, or the world is, is actually bad and wrong and scary and terrible, right? Or a little bit of all three, like the whole thing, myself, the world, my relationship, how I fit into that. And these are big, big topics, right? Those are kind of our big three topics. There's me, there's the world, and there's how do I fit into that world, right? And maybe I don't feel like I fit into that world, or I don't like how I fit into that world, or I actually look at the world, I don't want to fit into a world like this. Right. And then we, 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 we're not integrated. We're disintegrated. We kind of try to make these walls of like, well, the world's here and where's the wall? Where's the line? I need to be on the right side of the line. And you can't do any of these things, actually. You know, you can think about them and, and, and you can try to develop strategies on how you can avoid change, control, experience. But at the end of the day, you really know that you kind of can't. Right. And then we develop these habituations that really don't really help so much. So when we think about mindfulness as receptivity, um, you know, people talk about, you know, not being reactive, 
you're being responsive rather than reactive. That's a really great way, a very clinical way to look at things. But, you know, so easy to say, so hard to do. And the, the only way you can do that, actually, the only way you can be moved from being reactive to, res, to kind of responsive is to really have, an, have a, a, an awareness that's actually responsive, that's taking things in rather than just like this, trying to just fend off. That's not responsive. That's already reactive, right? If, if, if our psychological posture, our emotional posture is already like, get the fuck away, then we're already, already postured towards a reactive state, right? Does that make sense? So, you know, then the question becomes, well, what kind of mind do we need to develop to be able to do these things? And, you know, I think that's just, we could probably talk about this for weeks and weeks. I think there's lots of different things. And the thing I think that makes it so hard, and John and I were talking about this that people don't get, is that especially when you think about Buddhist ethics um, from a psychological perspective, it's the, 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 there's no like list of like rules, right? That we have the five precepts, right? But there's no, uh, the Buddha doesn't really, he's not interested in that. He's much more interested in what we would call probably most easiest way to describe it is a situational ethics, which is, Based on the situation that I find myself in from moment to moment to moment, what might be the best way to handle this? Right? So it's not, and, and that doesn't mean like, okay, well, I don't know what to do here. So let me go grab my list of five precepts. Let me go look at, so that's dogma, right? That's dogma saying, okay, what, are, what did the Buddha say about how to handle this situation with this person? First of all, there's no way he could give you that because, you know, there's so many situations that are vast and various. There's no way you could actually have a manual. So we have to put down the rule book. And the question becomes, you know, how do we assess what's going on, uh, which requires some degree of flexibility, some degree of adaptability, some degree of perspective taking. Um, we have to consider what, what might be an appropriate response to the situation, which sometimes the most appropriate response to any situation is no response which is hard for some of us. And then the question becomes, do I feel like the way I handle it or the way I approach it was adequate, I think is the word. Adequate meaning kind of good enough. Like D plus C minus in this conversation is actually pretty good. Do I feel like I had an appropriate perspective on what was going on and do I feel like I handled myself in a way that feels adequate? And I think that that's probably in many situations the best that we can do. And a lot of times in situations, we don't even do anything I just said. We just fucking react. And then we look at it later and go, oh, gee, I really wish I hadn't done that. So even if you're in that kind of, really, I think the only way to, only word to think about it is trying to live more of a contemplative life where we're really seeing everything that we do everything that we do as a kind of practice how am i in this experience with these people in this situation this very very specific unique experience that we find ourselves in all the time and then when you sit and you do formal meditation practice i think that's really more of the process because i don't know about you but I've noticed over the last many decades, usually when I sit down to practice, the, one of the first things that happens is my mind brings up recent events that I feel bad about. 
You ever notice this? You sit down, you close your mind, like your mind's like, okay, now that we're doing this thing, here's some shit you've done recently that I'm not so thrilled about, or here's some things that have happened recently that you didn't handle so well, or here's some people in the world that you need to avoid. It, it just it just gets right to it. Have you noticed this? Or it gives you hard, or you sit and you haven't sat in for a while, and your mind's like, wow, you don't do this much anymore, you know? It just kind of, and so there's, 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 that's I think where. Um, you know, this is why the whole present time awareness thing bothers me. It's like, I think when I sit and practice, mostly what I'm doing is I'm processing the recent past. That seems to be what happens anyway. Almost every single time that I sit is my mind wants to evaluate. It wants to have a dialogue. It wants to assess. It wants to discuss. It wants to process the recent past, you know, if you notice this. So if that's what it wants to do at this point, I'm just like, well, let's just fucking get it done then. I'm not going to like try to go, but you know, then we try to smush that out. 